0: Welcome to Under the Radar, a series of podcasts by the Bordi Radar Trust. I'm Emily Kasson and I'll be exploring the history of Bordi following the Second World War. This podcast explores national service and its relation to Bordi following the Second World War. On May 8th, 1945, the Allied forces accepted the surrender of Hitler's Germany and later in the year Japan would also offer their surrender. With the Second World War at its conclusion, by June 1945 Britain began the long process of demobilisation of thousands of men and women who had served in the forces during the war years. The process first began in 1944 with the reinstatement in Civil Employment Act, which allowed men and women to reclaim their pre-war jobs, providing their employer was still in business. While Britain was no longer at war, there was still a need to maintain high levels of military manpower in some parts of the world where the country had ongoing commitments, including Germany, Palestine and India. The British government concluded that to meet these needs effectively, they would need to use national service during peacetime, and in 1947, Parliament passed the National Service Act, which would come into force two years later, in 1949. This podcast aims to delve more deeply into national service, and Broadsey in post-war Britain. At the time that National Service was being discussed, in 1948, the Army and Air Force Women's Services Act created the opportunity for a permanent peacetime role for women in the British Armed Forces in recognition of their invaluable wartime contributions. On February 1st, 1949, the Women's Royal Air Force was reborn From the outset, the WRAF was to be as fully integrated into the RAF as possible, and women took the same oath and were subjected to the same conditions and disciplinary code as the men, but they were barred from undertaking combatant duties. Also formed in 1949 was the Women's Royal Army Corps. The new force absorbed the remaining troops of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS, and it was common for the women to serve with other army regiments on long-term attachments, opening up more and more roles to women, which in 1952 included 40 different trades. Like the WRAF and the Women's Royal Army Corps, following the Second World War, the Women's Royal Navy was made a permanent service and around 3,000 wrens were retained, mainly in administrative and support roles at Royal Navy establishments and Royal Naval Air Stations, both in the UK and overseas. So what was National Service? National service officially came into effect in January of 1949, and it called for physically fit men between the ages of 18 and 30 to serve in one of the armed forces for a term of 18 months. But with the start of the Korean War in 1950, this was extended to two years. Students and apprentices were able to defer their service until they completed their studies or training, and conscientious objectors had to undergo the same tribunal tests as in wartime. Other groups that were excluded from National Service included the mentally ill, clergymen, and to avoid possible unrest in nationalist communities, men from Northern Ireland were also excluded. Between 1949 and 1963, when the last National Serviceman was discharged, more than 2 million men were conscripted into the British Armed Forces. Conscripts would undergo a medical before six weeks of basic training, which would help them become accustomed with the military life. What did these men do during national service? Well, many were trained in general clerical duties, but some did receive more specific training in technical subjects such as communications and engineering. Training in foreign languages was also offered, with Russian being a popular choice owing to the ongoing Cold War. National servicemen were vital in providing the British army with a large garrison force in post-war Germany. And a smaller one in Japan but troops were also needed to maintain peace in places experiencing civil unrest such as Cyprus. Men that found themselves stationed in Kenya and Malaya were often on the front lines fighting guerrilla wars and during the years of national service 395 national servicemen were killed while in active service. It wasn't just men that found themselves in dangerous situations women of the WRAF also found themselves stationed in places such as Cyprus, Malaya and Kenya despite their non-combatant status, where they were also performing vital roles. Now, national servicemen didn't always find themselves stationed abroad. In fact, some found themselves stationed at RAF Bordsey. Following the Second World War, Bordsey was established as an operator's training school for radar mechanics and radar operators, and it remained as number five training school until 1950 with the integration of ROTA Stage 1. For those unfamiliar with ROTA, the project began following the Soviet Union's detonation of its first atomic bomb in 1949. The British government began to rethink their air defence network and the Cherry Report was soon commissioned. This report recommended that the 170 radar stations around the country should be reduced to 66 sites and the electronics in use should be extensively overhauled and upgraded. The Rotor project was massive and the remanufacture of radar equipment consumed both valuable manpower and resources at a time when the country was still having to enforce rationing. The project was split between the west and east coasts, with the threat to the east coast viewed as higher, therefore the majority of radar sites on this side of the country would need underground operations rooms. Bawdsey was one of these chosen 66 sites, and work began on building the underground operations room which would be hidden under the now distinctive bungalow which served as both entrance and guard room. In February 1953, the new Bordsey Rotor site began to function as a ground control interception Type E radar station, and by the end of the year, the chain home equipment was taken out of service. To get an idea of what life was like for national servicemen, I was fortunate enough to speak with three men who served at Bordsey during the national service. The account of Michael Faraday was enlightening. He was due to go to Cambridge, but his college insisted that he completed his national service first. He joined the RAF three months short of being 19 and found himself stationed at RAF Bawdsey when, on the 26th of March 1954, the operational staff at RAF Trimley Heath, Signals Unit 783, moved from RAF Felixstowe to RAF Bawdsey.
1: Most of the woods, the ornamental cliff gardens and the large walled kitchen gardens had been left as they had been. A few buildings had been built amongst all this to accommodate the airmen. Chain home aerials built on the estate were still operational, but a new operation site with up-to-date radar and other equipment had been built on the cliff, but underground a couple of miles down the road. We went into the only part which was above ground, the reception in the charge of service police. Then we went down some winding stairs to a lower level and then walked down a very long sloping corridor. There we changed shoes for pumps and walked on until we came to the upper floor of a two-storey underground building containing a large hall in which tables displaying all aircraft on our radar sites with identifications as they were made. This hall was faced on three sides by glass-fronted cabins, in each of which were consoles of radar equipment, plus navigation charts and radio gear. Among the cabins was the Chief Controllers' Cabin, in which I worked. In the cabin, the fixes were carried out, and the flight and weather board, on which, memorably, one cold day, someone displayed the weather state as brass monkey weather. The underground building also contained workshops, offices, lavatories, and restrooms. Although there were a minority of regular RAF personnel, which included a number of WAFs, most people at Baldy were national servicemen.
0: When speaking of his duties, Mr Faraday said...
1: Night exercises, which we called night binds, were the most enjoyable duties. These, the crew which had done the morning shift also had to do the night shift and took over from the afternoon shift at 5 pm. We stayed on duty until flying ceased, which might have been before midnight or even as late as 4 or 5 am. Night binds often had long years during which a good many games of brag for low stakes were played in the restrooms. The NATO air defence exercises were the most tactic duties of all. All NATO air forces on both sides of the North Sea were involved. Then the two shifts were involved around the clock for a fortnight. Anything could happen. The worst time was when the radar screen was white with planes and all we could do was to plot the corners of the mass. Everything was sent up against it, including fighters from the southern sector. In the midst of the turmoil over the North Sea, we learned that another air force was coming over the channel. During all this, the phone rang and a voice said, This is group captain so-and-so at command. You have been attacked by hostile aircraft and half your aerials are out of action. I told the chief controller and he said, Let's ignore him. During air defence exercises, we did not return to our billets. Instead, we remained on the site until we were next called. During these shifts off radar duty, half of us were allowed to try and sleep on exceedingly smelly and uncomfortable mattresses, spread out on a storeroom floor, while the other half had to turn out with rifles to defend the base outside.
0: I was also fortunate enough to speak to Peter Strong, who also served his national service at Bordsey. He finished his A-levels and at 18 he went on to do his national service. He said that he chose the RAF as he'd passed the test to get in. It was a multiple choice test and he laughed when he told me that you ended up in the army if you failed. it. But he still doesn't understand how the questions related to the work that he would be doing. Like Michael Faraday, he noticed that the majority of men at Baldy were there as part of the National Service. And if you wanted to rise up the rank, you had to sign on for at least a five year stretch rather than the two years required. This, he said, often meant that they would be outranked by some of the WRAF based at Bawdsey. Peter didn't find himself at Bawdsey right away as he was posted to Germany first, to work on radar, but when he got the call to go to Bawdsey, he was surprised to find that they weren't expecting him and it took a couple of days for it to be sorted out. I can only imagine that they were viewed with some suspicion in 1956 with the tension of the Cold War on the rise. A good memory that he had was of a six-week stretch when the station was shut for maintenance. He worked with the gardener at the manham along with a friend, and he remembers it was great. No one in charge of him except the gardener, and he was left to his own devices for six weeks of summer. After he completed his national service, he went back to the job he'd been set to start. He said it was a bit of a difficult transition to start with, but they had paid for his pension contributions for the two years that he'd been on national service, so it was a good deal. For him, national service meant he'd learnt how to get on with lots of different people, especially during square bashing, when up to 30 men were sharing one room. The third gentleman I spoke to was Victor Severe. Before National Service he'd served an apprenticeship as a carpenter and joiner for five years, joining the RAF because his friends had chosen the same path. One of the highlights of his time during National Service was marching in the coronation. He said they had six weeks of special training before they went to London and all eight of them from Felixstowe were included. They stayed on the edge of London and they marched 14 miles after seven hours of waiting around. He made a comment that they were all too tired to go out in the turn afterwards. The most daring thing he ever did when at Baldsy was on a beautifully clear morning he climbed the transmitter tower to watch the sunrise. He said he didn't know that it was a no-go area but his punishment was that he'd forgotten his camera. The Suez Crisis of 1956 forced the British government to reassess their standing as a world power, as well as their use of the armed forces. The threat of nuclear weapons rendered a large force ineffective, and the Defence Review of 1957, led by the Minister for Defence, Duncan Sandys, initiated a shift in emphasis towards more cost-efficient missile programmes. National service ended in 1960. But those with deferred service would still need to carry this out, and the final national serviceman, 2nd Lieutenant Richard Vaughan of the Royal Army Pay Corps, was demobilised on May 16, 1963, officially ending national service in the United Kingdom. When speaking about his national service, Michael Faraday said,
1: I've often wondered whether I gained more than I lost from spending two years on national service. I learned to mix better with people who were unlike myself. I was more mature when I got to university and had better judgment. I even had a renewed enthusiasm for work and study. The downside was that I lost two valuable years of my life compared with those who were arriving at university after me as national service was being run down and eventually ended. I started my career later and had to buy some of my own pension rights. Like other ex-national servicemen, by the time I was 40, I was passed over in favour of younger men and women who had not given their country two years of their youth. Nevertheless, those of us at Borti had a comparatively easy life, quite unlike our contemporaries, who were at the time fighting the communists in the jungles of Malaya.
0: In recent years, there have been calls for national service to be reintroduced in Britain by using the Scandinavian model as a template. In Denmark today, male teenagers are obliged to complete an online evaluation form to see if they would be suitable for national service. Teenage girls are permitted to volunteer, but they are not obliged to do so. But only a small number are actually chosen each year following a variety of other assessments. Norway and Sweden have a similar system to Denmark, but all teenagers regardless of gender take part. Other countries that still operate a system of national service include Switzerland, Austria, Brazil, and Russia to name just a few. The ROTA program allowed Bawdsey to continue to protect Britain at a time when the site could easily have suffered the fate of a hundred other Second World War radar stations around the coast, and it would continue to play an important role in Britain's defence throughout the Cold War era. If you were stationed at Bawdsey, or know someone that was, We would love to hear from you, and you can contact us via social media or on our website. In the next podcast, we delve into the history of the Cold War and how the events had an effect on Boardsy itself, along with more stories from those that worked at Boardsy. I hope you will join us to listen to the other Under the Radar podcasts. To find out more about Boardsy Radar, visit www.boardsyradar.org.uk and follow Boardsy Radar on Twitter and Facebook. Both the Body Radar Trust and I would like to thank the National Lottery Heritage Fund for supporting this series of podcasts.